Good morning, everyone. Pastor Kevin has the morning, except we kind of swapped. You guys notice that? Kevin and I kind of swapped. He was on the drums, and I'm kind of up here. Uh, Kevin and Cleo have a new grandson. Did everybody see that? Yay. Axel Chell. And so... um, we had worked out a few weeks ago because um, you know this was impending, and you know even though you know you get a due date, who knows, right? And so we wanted to make sure we had some Sundays covered in case Kevin was going to have to you know be elsewhere and be grandpa or whatever. And so um, I volunteered for this one. And let me just tell you, Mrs. Buck did not raise a dumb child because they're all out there loading the trailer right now. And I'm in here in the air conditioning talking to you. So, um, yeah, I picked this Sunday as my Sunday to share. Jason Miles, our buddy Jason Miles, is going to share next week, which is going to be awesome, awesome. So give uh, Pastor Kevin just a little bit of a breather. And um, hopefully what I have to share with you today will, will, uh, will bless you again. What I try to do is I'm, this is all the stuff I think about, you guys, as scary as that may seem. This is all the stuff that's running through my head and my heart and... Um, I hope it's going to uh, say something to you this morning as well. Um, our son moved. Anybody have uh, kids living with them? I don't mean little kids, but adult kids living with you? Yeah, a few of you. That's really, really getting common um, in our day and age, and it's getting really got common during COVID. And actually, for us, it actually turned out to be a blessing. Our son Jared moved back in with us. It was November of uh, 2019. He wanted to go back to school. We talked about that, how we could support him. Um, I had to get all my junk out of his old bedroom, um, which I did reluctantly. Um, but it was actually turned out such a blessing because he moved in in November of 2019, then COVID hit in February of 2020. And he would have had to anyway. I mean, his, the place where he was working closed down. He worked in a restaurant bar. It closed down. Um, and that probably would have happened anyway. And we were able to do it in a non-panic mode right? We just sort of moved him in over time and gradually. And so I looked back and I didn't realize that until it was months later, but I said, Lord, thank you that that happened the way it happened because it made it so much easier. So my son, who I could not get him to do his homework to save my life when he was, you know, in high school and junior high school, is working on a double major in physics and math. And I mean, he is on it and in it. And I mean, he disappears for hours at a time and um, blows my mind with the stuff he talks to me about and, you know, whatever, and has me reading some books. But there's one little byproduct. So we watch a lot of science programs together, and I've always loved that. In fact, when he was little, um, I used to say, he and my daughter both, I would say, let's watch something that, and after we get done watching it, we'll know something we didn't know before. You know, it's always kind of like an adventure, right? So I've always enjoyed that. And so I've been watching a lot of science and physics documentaries with my son. A lot of it, you know, just goes right over this old head. But I'll tell you, um, we even had this discussion. And he said, Dad, when you watch stuff like this, what does it do to your faith? And I said, it makes it so much stronger. And I know in our world today and in our evangelical Christian world, science can be viewed by some as the enemy of faith or the enemy of truth. Frankly, I think somebody's looking at it incorrectly. 
Because when you look at the one, I read a book recently that he gave me to read, and I, boy, I plowed through it, but I finished it. It was called The Copernicus Complex. One part of that book talked about the very first time that a scientist looked at a drop of water under a microscope. And there was a universe in this drop of water. And the as science begins to unfold and as telescopes can reach further and, and microscopes can reach further the other direction, you just begin to realize the wonder of the creator. That's where I come from. I, just the wonder of this creator from the molecular to the massive. Um, God's fingerprints, in my opinion, are all over it. And... Um, the amazing, and so if you believe in God the creator, you then have to step into the fact that God is a creator of systems. Because when you look at how everything works, it is a, it is a cosmic dance of these systems that all interact um, from, the, from the cosmos and the interstellar, how the law of gravity and so forth plays on the planets and the stars and the comets that return on a predictable arc because of those, uh, of those powers and those laws of physics. And then you kind of go a little bit smaller than the cosmos and you look at our Earth and what do we call the systems in our Earth? We call them an eco-system. It's a system, and man, just to even think about how water evaporates and falls as rain and nurtures the soil and the plants grow, and isn't it a great coincidence that the trees breathe out what we breathe in? You know, then that work out nicely. Um, and you just recognize that this earth is this wonderful, beautiful system. Um, and I think we're starting to find out a little bit now what happens when we mess with that too much, right? That was 116 degrees the other day. Uh, so that's maybe something for us to pay a little bit more attention to and be the caretakers that God intended us to be. But the systems of the cosmos, the systems of our planet, and then look at our own bodies. And I wrote some of these down. What do we call them? We call it the nervous system, the respiratory system, the circulatory system, the coronary system, the digestive system, the lymphatic system. All in you know, this, this wonder of order not just in the cosmos, but contained in our own bodies as well. I mean, it is an amazing thing. So God the creator, if we believe in a God the creator, then we have to accept that that God the creator is a God of miraculous systems that interact and work. So does physics threaten my faith? Does science threaten my faith? Not at all. In fact, I'll tell you, I remember hearing this years ago that um, you know, if I, I have my Batman watch, by the way, I don't know if you guys have ever seen my Batman watch, but I love this watch. I bought it in Palm Springs. It has Batman on it. I just love my Batman watch. If I, there's this theory that if I took my Batman watch apart, every gear, screw, lens, took it completely apart, and I put it in a plastic bag, or a, you know, bag, a lunch bag, and shook it, and if I shook it long enough, it would reassemble itself, right? I mean, to believe, to me, to believe that this incredible, complex, interwoven, synergistic world was a 
my watch in the bag. I heard another one, too, that was great. It said, you know, if you sat a chimpanzee in front of a, chi- of a keyboard and you had long enough time, he'd eventually write all the works of Shakespeare. <laughs> I suppose. I'm not sure how long that would take. I don't know. It's much easier for me to believe in Shakespeare than it would be in, you know, the monkey doing that. It's frankly much easier for me to believe in an intelligent, loving, omniscient God assembling this than it is for me to believe that somehow the universe was just in a paper bag being shaken so it doesn't shake my faith. I think science has wonderful confirmations for us of the glory and the consistency and the absolute majesty of God. We're getting ready to head to Rimrock, and I'll tell you what, man, you want to see stars, go to Rimrock. What's great about Rimrock is you get that. You ever been where the light sources The unnatural light sources are so dim that you see the smear of the Milky Way. So you can see the individual stars, but then there's sort of this, like, it almost looks like a haze or a cloud. That's the stars that you can't see distinctly, and that's just in our galaxy. (laughs) There are are millions of galaxies. I mean, it just blows your mind to think about it. Um, And what we know today, um, kind of bring it back down to this planet, we're the sentient life on this planet. And what I mean by sentient is we have awareness. We have self-awareness. We can ask questions. We can explore. We can ask why and go and try and find those answers. Um, So I love that, man. I love that exploration. And um, I just think, to me, so far, God's at the end of all those trails that I've followed. Amen? Awesome. So being... The height of his creation, which is what the Bible tells us. And obviously, God created everything from the amoeba to us. Um, should we wonder that the God that created all of these systems would also create a system for how we live our lives? Not just biologically, but morally and how we interact. That God would create that and would impress that. I really believe that when the Bible says that we are created in the image of God, that in our DNA, the values of God are imprinted in us as people. Um, the, uh, if you look at a, an atheistic state, which you know the old Soviet Union used to be, I don't know if it is anymore, but the old Soviet Union was officially an atheistic state, right? There was no God. That is a modern creation. If you look from the cave art of you know, of uh, some of the beautiful caves in France and Spain, all the way to isolated Pacific Islands, to India, to Russia, to Mexico, to Egypt. What's the commonality that you see? We worship. We worship something greater than ourselves, something unseen. I think that's pressed in the DNA of who we are, that there is something, a power greater than us, that needs to be, that we long to worship. That, and why do we worship? Because we want to be connected to it. Somehow, some way we know that we want to be connected to that. I believe that the Lord that created all these wonderful systems also gave us that as well. He gave us this beautiful book called the Bible. A lot of you guys know the Teen Challenge guys who live in the house over here in Renton. I'm pointing the wrong way. The house over here in Renton. And... Um, Oh, Cindy and, and Tony are back there. Cindy, uh, what's your role? Are you the administrator? How would you describe that? Professional volunteer. Professional volunteer. 
There you go. Yeah. So uh, Cindy, so faith, faithfully, I was at the house and has gotten them involved here and has gotten so many of us involved at the house. And a few um, weeks ago, Cindy said, I was talking to some of the guys we were working out here cutting wood and whatever, and um, some of the guys were interested in writing, and obviously I'm obviously very interested in writing. And so we started talking about that, and uh, Cindy and I talked, and she said, would you start like a writing group at uh, Teen Challenge. I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So five guys opted in right away, and we would sit out by the pool. And what I decided to do, because I'm not really like a professional teacher, but I thought, you know what, let's do, let's pick a book that we all agree on, and let's go through that book together, and let's look at the book, not just for the content and the precepts, but let's look at it, uh, how the writer wrote it. How did this writer take these ideas and convey them? And so what we chose was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Has anybody ever read that book? I mean, it's a, you got to read it, and then read it, and then read it. Uh, but it's, a, it's an amazing, an amazing book. And here's something I didn't know. The, the, I had to go get another one. I read it when I first became a Christian, and I hadn't read it since. And so I had to actually go buy a copy, because whatever happened to mine. And this one had a special foreword. And here's stuff I didn't know. It talked about why, how this book came about. And here's how it came about. Does anybody know this story? Okay, some of you guys do. It was World War II. England was standing alone against the tyranny of Nazism, and the country needed to be united. And so the government came, was looking for, in the, in the labor unions and in you know, the factories and in, the, and in the farms and so forth, they were looking to unite the country, like we did in the United States when we entered the war, to unite the country against that common enemy. And C.S. Lewis was asked to be the voice of religion, because England was fairly divided. Um, you'd be a Presbyterian, you could be an, uh, an Anglican, and you know, you'd fight over what book you should read and all that stuff, and there was a lot of that. Um, and so C.S. Lewis was asked to create unity. <laughs> what a job. Create unity in Britain around religious differences. Ah, sure, I'll do that, no problem. Give me a half hour. Um, <laughs> And so Mere Christianity was a series of radio broadcasts that C.S. Lewis did with that as his intent. And so the guys and I are kind of going through that, and we're looking at the symbol of how did this man take this enormous task and put into words a way to try to set aside differences and see commonalities. And it's an ama- when you understand the backstory of that book, it becomes um, even more amazing. And C.S. Lewis spends the first few chapters talking about, well, first he kind of sets it up, and he says, you know, as people of faith, he talks to the church, he says, as people of faith, we walk this hallway. That wall, hallway has walls, common things that we believe. But at some point, I step into this room because it has a fire and a comfortable chair, and I like this. And you may step in off the hallway to this room because it has a standing desk, and it has a globe, and, it has, and you may step into this one because it has a big window that you can look out of. The point he was trying to make is we have the hallway in common, and you may step into your denomination based on your comfort, based on the thing that you feel appeals to you. I thought, what a, as a writer, I thought, what a great metaphor to help people understand that those differences, he said, and that's okay as long as we have the hallway in common, right? As long as we're not, you know, going outside, as long as we have that hallway in common. Um, And so he began to teach about this commonality of the, he called it the nature of man, and I think he was really brilliant. He didn't dive into this um, 
religious, you know, and thump them with the Bible and fill it with Bible verses. He just talked to them as people, and he talked about the natural law of man. And what he really meant by that was this inner thing in our DNA that brings commonality to all of us. And then he was saying, without that, how would we even know that the Nazis were bad? It would just be different. But we feel it's bad. And, it's, and why? Because there is this inherent law of what is good and what is bad. And when you see the good violated, it riles something up in you. And so anyway, I'm not going to go off on that. I'm, and you can talk about that forever. But C.S. Lewis, just a, the brilliant way that he, that he talks about this commonality that we have. Um, Tim Keller, who is a pastor and a writer in New York. Tim Keller is one of my absolute favorite um, writers and pastors. And Tim Keller said something one time to, uh, in one of his books called The Reason for God that just was one of those moments and kind of uh, freed me to see, I think, the, the truth of God um, differently. What Tim Keller said was that freedom is not the absence of boundaries. Freedom is submitting to the right boundaries. And the example he used was like a fish swimming in a stream. And, you know, the fish might go, I don't want to be confined by this creek. I'm getting out. Boom, he jumps out, you know, while he's flopping around the bank. He certainly can do that. He can make that choice. May not work out too well for him, but he can certainly do that. And so Tim Keller says that, that, that um, the true freedom is really found in when we align with those boundaries and with those things that are the right things to align with. And how do we know what those are? Well, we have a guide that kind of helps us. Now, one of our youth group kids made a great, we had like ask the hard question night, you know, at youth group. And one of the kids said, why didn't God just make us love him? Why didn't he just create us that way? And we're just, we love him and we don't have this struggle and we don't walk away. And why didn't he just create us that way? That's a pretty good question. That's a pretty deep question. Um, here's how I answered that question. I said, because God is love. And love, by definition, has to be a choice. If it's not a choice, it's not love. So God created, created us with this free will. He sets those boundaries and he communicates those boundaries, doesn't he? He sets those truths. Just like the law of gravity, I could choose to say, I don't want to be bound by the law of gravity and go up on the roof of the church and step off. I could do that. Probably won't work out very well for me, but I could do that. I could be like that fish that chooses to jump. I think I would much rather find those boundaries that are true and align myself with those. As Tim Keller said, that's where my true freedom is going to be found. That fish was designed and created to live in the, in the beauty and the clarity and the coolness of that stream, not flopping around on the bank. can choose to go there if he wants to, um, but maybe it's not the best decision. There are truths, I believe this, there are universal truths that if we learn them and we understand them and we incorporate them, that's where our freedom is found. We talk about the fact that Christ, who Christ has set free is what? Free indeed, is free indeed. We hear a lot of talk about freedom, especially in our country and stuff today. True freedom is really found in discovering the truths of God and aligning ourselves with those. But we have an enemy, don't we? First of all, we have our own flesh. You know, a lot of people say, doggone that devil. 
he blah, 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 blah. And I kind of want to say, you know, the devil's probably in Afghanistan right now stirring stuff up. It's just your flesh. Because <laughs> yeah. Paul told us we're at war. And we are at war with principalities and, and so forth. Don't get me wrong. We are. But we're also at war with our own flesh. Read Romans 7 and 8. That this, the desire to please God and to align with those truths that I know are there and are good for me. Battle with this willfulness this willfulness to define freedom for myself. That there's this in us that we don't want somebody else telling us what we should do. I don't want to stay in the creek. I want to jump out. And that's, you know, welcome to the raising teenagers. Right? That's what it all is. It's all testing those boundaries that mom and dad have laid out all these years. And Well, let's find out what happens if I stick my hand in the fire. And unfortunately, some, you know, learn that way. Some never learn. But there are universal truths that we can align ourselves to, and that's where true freedom comes. But we do have an enemy. It starts with us, but we do have an enemy that speaks into our ear and wants to tell us that those truths aren't truth. Uh, and freedom is found outside of those truths. I have a little story I've written I'd like to read you guys. Is that okay? You have to say yes or I won't do it. All right, good. Well, that was pretty good. Okay. So there's a lot of symbolism. I actually wrote this story after uh, one of our sessions with Teen Challenge in talking about C.S. Lewis illustrating some of these principles and how he did that. And um, we all said we were going to go away and we were all going to write a metaphor. We were going to read C.S. Lewis chapters 1 through 3. We're going to take one of his principles and then we were going to come back with a short little tiny metaphor. Well, my metaphor is about 18 pages long, so it's not really short. But this was the metaphor that I came away with in looking at that idea of eternal truth. So there's a lot of symbolism. I'll tell you this right now in the story. There's a lot of symbolism. And maybe if we have time, maybe we'll even talk about what a little of that symbolism is at the end. Sound good? Okay. This story is called The Clock and the Musician. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. Proverbs 3, 19. The town of Port Leandro sat unsullied by the sea, filled with folks and families all resembling you and me. Life moved as expected, filled with work and play and rest. Honest, upright citizens who always tried their best. Cottages are neatly kept, the businesses sublime. Farms enclose the outskirts, plowed in straight and perfect lines. The railroad station, wonderful. The pier and docks, pristine. Civic pride is solid from library to latrine. Yet the boast of Port Leandro, what the people cherish most, the great handcrafted village clock that's seen from crest to coast. Its chimes ring o'er the countryside, and all can hear them well, from the captains on their vessels to the farmers in the dell. The clock's familiar tolling was a treat for all to hear and bathe the folks in unity, though far away or near. Yes, Order filled this little burg, stability its crown, until a traveling salesman rolled one day into town. His wagon, bright and polished, moved on red and yellow wheels, 
signage told of quite fantastic life-altering deals. And sitting on the wagon seat, all flashing eyes and charm, we find a man whose voice can talk the paint right off the barn. Now, don't worry about this salesman's name. He's as canny as a fox and changes it like you or I would change our shirt or socks. And so he drives his wagon through this unsuspecting town and wears a smile as he prepares to turn it upside down. A plodding mule soon pulls that rig up to the courthouse square just below the clock where it sits high up in the air. And through a handheld megaphone, the salesman starts his pitch, designed to birth reaction like a small yet growing itch. My friends, I've come to testify, encourage the dejected, free you from the bondage you've been heretofore subjected. I know the yoke you carry, the confinement rank and vile, castaway marooned upon a bleak despotic isle hopelessly consigned to the capricious will and whims of a cruel and soulless tyrant, reeling all your minds and limbs. Freedom, liberation, this I offer here and now. Take this hand of destiny, and I will show you how. The crowd that milled and gathered in confusion scratched their heads. I didn't know that we were sad and miserable, they said. And who's this evil tyrant, miscreant of who you speak? Their tone was one of skepticism, doubting his mystique. The enslaver watches everything. The salesman ramped it up. Silent till his sharp pronouncements thunder and erupt. I give to you your dictator, the lord of chain and lock. He swept his arm and pointed as he cried, the village clock. People are dumbfounded, startled in the aftermath. Some begin to shake their heads, and many start to laugh. The salesman wears a knowing look. He's seen this all before. Then calls out to the grocer, who is standing just outside his store. You there, my good man, please tell me verily, I pray, when do you unlock for your first patrons of the day? That's easy, said the grocer. I unlock and raise the blinds every morning when I hear the clock is striking nine. I see, the salesman, let that answer marinate and leaven. And closing time is in the evening when the clock strikes seven? Uh, yeah, the grocer nods his head. I guess it is at that. The salesman gives a passing grin and then removes his hat. How about you? he queries to a man dusted in flour. I take it you're the baker, rising a ungodly hour. A laugh escapes the baker. Huh? Yeah, I do, believe you me. I know it's time for waking when I hear the clock strike three. He God, the salesman uttered, then resumed his little talk, pointing out to others their enslavement to the clock. The banker and the butcher, all the teachers and instructors, farmers, merchants, sailors, and the railroad conductors, cobblers, coopers, carpenters, the masons, millers, thatchers, tavern keepers, barley reapers, dentists, and dog catchers. He needles observations on their servitude to time, dependence on the clock, and their reliance on its chimes. 
Well, soon they're in a hissy fit. His observations taunt them. It's time to get to business, for they're now right where he wants them. Don't despair, my weary friends, for you can slay this dragon, and I have your deliverance right here inside my wagon. Show us, help us! Now the crowd is pleading for his wares. All are thirsting to discover what his wagon bears. The salesman reaches to retrieve a large and heavy box. In it are a vast array of timepieces and clocks. Ask yourself why you're reduced, required and confined to one central authority establishing the time. Set your own devices. Yes, display them on your shelves. Be your own timekeepers and define time for yourselves. If three o'clock's too early, to the baker he then cheeps, make it 6 a.m. and so pick up three hours sleep. Grocer, be creative when you open up your store. Set your clock for 8, 11, 5, 2, 9, or 4. Liberate your railroads, set free each school and shop. Unchain your bars and restaurants, let this confinement stop. Cast aside conformity, convention is uncouth. Reject the mere existence of a universal truth. Step right up, good citizens. Throw off restrictive collars and own your own timepieces for a mere $100. The non-response was deafening. The crowd unmoving stands. The salesman starts to think, hmm, I may have overplayed my hand. A clock he thrust up high for all to witness and inspect. The silence starts the sweat of worry dribbling down his neck. And as he feared his well-laid plan was over now and done, a voice rang out from in the crowd, exclaiming, We'll take one! A quite substantial woman, just as tall as she is wide, leads a skinny, balding man who's trailing at her side. This mountain of a lady and her molehill of a spouse own and run the Port Leandro Inn and Boarding House. By golly, I'm just sick and tired, she shouted at the clock, of living by your strikes and chimes, your every tick and talk, breakfast when you're sounding six, and lunch when you strike noon, in between the washing, cleaning, making up the rooms, start supper when you say it's four, and then serve it up at five. I should be the queen bee, not some drone within the hive. So I will buy a timepiece. And she looked at all the people. And I'll say what the time is, and not that rascal in the steeple. The salesman breathes a soothing sigh of self-congratulations. Madam, welcome to Nirvana and your liberation. Just like a magic potion, like the bursting of a dam, the mob rushes the salesman with their dollars in their hands. He sells out in a jiffy every gear and glass and wire, Soon his box is just as empty as the promise of a liar. Friends, the salesman blithely coos, you're all now well endowed to be your own timekeepers. And then he gestures to the crowd. That relic in the steeple, it will run down and unwind. Let it. Grasp this chance of individualizing time. Make it work for you. Go set it any way you choose. You've nothing but your now passé conformity to lose. 
Off now to your homes, your shops, your farms, your inns, and may this new dawn of liberation finally begin. Well, off the people wander, each one bearing a device, while the salesman says, hmm, I really should have upped the asking price. Eh, no matter, time to pack my bag, get on the road and flee, before they find the thing they've really bought is anarchy. Happily, the folks of Port Leandro set their clocks, each positioning the hands according to their wants. And as the salesman had advised, the clock up in the tower was forgotten and neglected and no longer toned the hour. At first, the mess was minimal, a few confused appointments, small misunderstandings, and some trivial disjointments. But then the snafus escalated well beyond annoyance. Soon everyone had lost their humor, tolerance, and buoyance. Milk was now delivered any time the dairy pleased, languishing on doorsteps, porches, turning into cheese. The baker and the grocer opened now to suit their mood, turning to a game of chance each trip for bread or food. Banking was a nightmare every teller understands. When the clock says lunchtime's over, well, you just reset the hands. The railroad became utter bedlam, causing much frustration, for passengers could never know when trains would leave the station. Every single phase of life is constant interruption, the peaceful village tumbling into chaos and disruption. And when it seemed that all was lost, that none could thrive or cope, another stranger came to town. But this one carried hope. He walked with no pretension, quite low-key and unassuming, nothing like the salesman with his megaphones loud booming. He sported just a mandolin, slung easy round his neck, and a simple knapsack, worn and dusty from his trek. As he strode up Main Street toward the central village square, sounds of bitter bickering and anger filled the air. He shook his head in wonder, for he knew this chorus well. When traveling in the salesman's wake, there's always this to quell. He stopped beside a lamppost, set his knapsack on the ground, strummed his instrument just once, a sweet, melodious sound. He let that note sustain itself, regripped the mandolin, set his fingers carefully, and strummed that note again. Beautifully, this single chord rang lovely as before, and with a flicking of his wrist, he played that note once more. It wasn't a great sonnet, such as bards or choirs sing, just that one compelling tone repeated on the string. As the music rides the breeze, the very air to glisten, people stop their arguing, stand mesmerized, and listen. Ears have conquered voices, stilling all the angry talk, for the rhythmic tone reminds them of their once beloved clock. Just like a mother's heartbeat to an infant in the womb, like Lazarus emerging from a cold and lonely tomb, so the people of the town, their circumstance laid bare, make their way in wonderment back to the village square. Gathering in the shadow of the steeple and the clock, they trade profound expressions of confusion and of shock. 
For it's not their precious timepiece that has rung and called them in, but a young and dusty stranger with a dusty mandolin. The grocer clears his throat and finds the fortitude to speak. Good sir, you have disarmed me with your musical technique. I say it is uncanny, like a thing finely embossed. Your music carries memories of something sadly lost. The musician stopped his strumming, said with cool and easy grace, Tell me of this thing you have woefully misplaced. Looking towards the steeple with a cracking in his voice, the grocer said, I fear we made a rank and foolish choice. We thought we'd gained empowerment, rejected servitude. Instead, nothing but selfishness, intolerance intrude. He told the young musician all about the salesman's pitch. I fear we fell headlong into a nasty bait and switch. Now we reap the harvest of our soul misguided choice. The crowd murmured agreement with the stilling of his voice. Gently, firmly, the musician crafted his reply. I know that salesman well. He's skilled at marketing his lies. Cunning, unprincipled, inscrutably adept. You're not the first to buy into his promises unkept. But let's speak no longer of that huckster's rank misdeeds. Instead, let's find the pathway out and discover where it leads. The grocer shook his head. I fear that pathway is forlorn. His gaze went to the clock, its capabilities now shorn. We allowed our village timepiece to expire and to die. Even to restart it now brings no answer to my eye, for no one knows the hour. We've lost that grand design. In our quest for something better, well, I fear we murdered time. Smiling, the musician brought this comforting reproof. The prophet may be martyred. You can never martyr truth. Time is independent, like the colors of a prism. It isn't held a hostage by a crafted mechanism. The clock is a reflection. It's a servant, quite sublime, of a universal principle, a concept we call time. Time flourishes, believe me, beyond any single clock. Once you understand that, oh, the freedom it unlocks. Intrigued, the grocer senses something unsaid, something more. Sir, I sense this principle has much more to explore. The way you speak of time, I see a deeper meaning there, of truths, of knowledge, and that you have much more to share. Laughing now, the young musician strums his mandolin. My friend... The songs are endless once you sing and enter in. The Lord, who has my fealty, celebrates this grand disclosure, for he's the true, the universal author and composer. Other conversations, other purposes imparted, there's time enough for those. Right now, let's get your timepiece started. He reached into his knapsack from that dusty bag withdrew a dazzling gold chronometer and brought it into view. My Lord provides an instrument. It's delicate and fine, and it's all that is required for the restoration of the time. Take this to the steeple, start the gears, the springs, the bands, and use my Lord's chronometer 
to rightly set the hands. An eager group steps forward, takes the shining instrument, hopeful in their chatter, light and lively as they went. The crowd beneath stands anxiously with every finger crossed, praying for redemption of a thing they thought they lost. The sound of wheels turning, gears so excellently meshed, invigorates the people like a thirsty man refreshed. The hands upon the clock advance, their duties to resume, stopping when they finally reach three minutes before noon. Rushing from the steeple comes the group who made repairs, rejoining all the town folk, milling hushed within the square. And as they stand there waiting, the musician is compelled to whisper as the clock strikes noon, My Lord, now all is well. The chimes ring out magnificently o'er the town and fields, bringing forth rejoicing these once bitter souls conceal. And as the final tolling takes its turn and fades away, all flank the young musician who made possible this day. They offer the chronometer to return it to his care. He tells them, no, it's yours to make available and share. Take it to your businesses, your shops, your farms, your homes. Ensure that truth and accuracy are well and fully known. The grocer opens wide his arms. I think I speak for all when I say you have our thanks. We're blessed you came to call. The musician says, your gratitude is pleasing. Although somewhat misdirected, my sovereign Lord is where your praise should rightly be directed. Tell us of your Lord, they said, and sing your master's songs. Maybe we can learn them and then all can sing along. Smiling, the musician nodded, welcoming the task. Well, let me tune my mandolin. I thought you'd never ask. Well, I got a little bit of symbolism in that story. What does time represent in this story, do you think? Just shout it out. It's okay. Belief. Okay. Order. What else? Something even more basic. Truth. The time exists, whether the clock runs down or not. And you can set your own clock to your heart's content. It's not going to change that truth of what time actually is. The sun is going to do its thing, right? No matter what we do with our human man-made devices. So time really does represent the truth of God that's eternal. And that clock was the, was the thing that brought that to them, that they enjoyed that unity. Things worked, things hum. If you said you were going to show up somewhere at 6 o'clock, you showed up at 6 o'clock. And why? Because you had that common understanding that that was going to happen. But then somebody came to town. It was the salesman. Yeah, the devil, the liar, the one who has a lot of promises, and those promises always seem to be something for us, right? Something better, something additional. Don't be confined here. Be free here. And he knows how to weave those lies. He's had a lot of time to practice them. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of times we listen to those, don't we? He gets inside of our head, and um, dissatisfaction 
um, you know, it begins to have its way. Um, but then somebody else came to town. Who, does, who do you think, and I had a musician, the musician's going to be kind of a little guy that's going to show up in a lot of my stories. He showed up in one I read the last time. Who do you think the musician represents? I'll just tell you, the musician's the Holy Spirit. The musician's the Holy Spirit. The musician is gentle wisdom. The ability, you know, when I was doing work in human resources, one of my jobs was I was the employee relations manager, so everything that went wrong ended up in my office. And you'd bring people in together, either individually or together. And there were so many times that I would be talking with someone, and about three minutes into that conversation, I would know exactly what I thought they ought to do to make that better. Now, I had a couple of choices. I could tell them that, right? Go, so I want you to stop. Here's what you, here's what you need to do. Or I could go, you know what? Let me ask you a couple of questions. And you just throw out questions, and they answer those questions, and they talk. And suddenly, after a little while, they go, you know what I think I should do? I think I should do this. And you go, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Tell me more. And that's the thing you would have told them. But there is power in discovering it for yourself. It's one thing if someone tells you. It's another thing if you make that discovery. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit is that gentle voice that leads us to the truth, especially when we're wandering, that leads us back. God is such a gentleman, isn't he? God will very rarely ever bang us on the head. Marcy got banged on the head. God will very rarely ever bang us on the head till we see stars. Usually it's that gentle voice of the Holy Spirit that will bring us back where we are. The musicians, the Holy Spirit, the beautiful music, the beautiful um, invitation uh, to come back uh, into where there's order and to come back into where there's truth. What's the chronometer? The Bible, yeah. That thing that carries truth no matter what goes on elsewhere. Chronometers were amazing inventions because it was how... Um, I think it was, it's either latitude or longitude. Do you know which? No, longitude was the big challenge. Latitude, sailors could figure out their latitude way back in the day, but longitude was a lot tougher, and you had to do it based on time. That's how longitude is calculated. That's why Greenwich, we talk about Greenwich time and the prime meridian. Greenwich is zero, and every meridian advances off of Greenwich, England. And so chronometers, so in order for a sailor to understand their longitude, they had to know what time it was in Greenwich. And then they could calculate their longitude. So there was a huge contest. Who can create a clock that can, is rugged enough that it could be carried on horseback and on ships and everywhere so that travelers all through the, this was the British, all through the British Empire would always know where they were because they could calculate their longitude. And there was finally this gentleman, there's actually a great book I read about that, this guy that created this chronometer that was solid. In fact, it's still in a museum, that original chronometer is in a museum in London. And from that, chronometers were offered to every ship's captain, every adventurer, every explorer, so they always knew where they were. They could calculate not just their latitude, but their longitude, and they could make maps, and they could lead others into the path that they, were, that they were blazing. Isn't that an amazing parallel to what the Bible does for us as well? That constant truth, no matter where we are, that tells us where we are. No matter where we may be, it tells us where we are. 
that chronometer is our Bibles. And so if we ever need to re- that reset, if we never need, ever feel like we've strayed, um, that's available to us. God's chronometer is available. I just think, man, there's just so many cool parallels. When you get into the world of metaphors, it's pretty endless, isn't it? So let me just encourage us that there is a truth that God has offered for us in the same way that God hung the stars, in the same way that God beautifully created this world and all that's in it, uh, including us. Um, God also created a truth. We're his most loved creation for whatever reason he chose us. We're the pinnacle. As far as we know right now, we're the pinnacle of that creation. And he didn't just stop with us biologically. He also engages us engages with us morally and socially and gives us systems by which and rules and laws by which that we can trust, by which we can live. When we stray from those, well, it's just like sort of walking off the roof. Gravity will have its way no matter what. The, the truth of who God is and God's truth will have its way no matter what we do. So wouldn't it be better to do what Pastor Tim Keller advises us to do? Freedom isn't the lack of boundaries. It's aligning with the right ones. Amen? Amen. Lord, we just thank you for an opportunity to be in your presence this morning. Thank you for so many of us. This is just a reminder. It's not, it's not something new. It's not something, you know, uh, mind-blowing, but it is a reminder that you have given us um, that chronometer. You have given us that ability to, um, to know what time it is, to know truth, no matter where we are. God, may we... Uh, carry that with great reverence and great joy. And Lord, give us the wisdom to not listen to the traveling salesmen of our world, um, but to rest on what we know is true in you. Um, And Lord, when we do that and when we align ourselves and our lives with the boundaries that you have created for us for our good, um, Lord, that uh, that is when we can flourish and we are exactly where you intended us to be in your will. So that's my prayer for all of us today whether it's a reset or whether it's a continuation on the path that we've been walking, whatever it may be. God, give us the wisdom to recognize that the God that hung the stars is involved in our lives and wants to be involved in our lives and wants good things for us. You're a good father, and we acknowledge that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody, wonderful Sunday today, huh? All right.